In 1819, Jefferson responded from Poplar Forest to Virginia lawyer and Virginia Court of Appeals judge, Spencer Rowan. He was the opposite of classmate John Marshall, and it was rumored that Jefferson sought Rowan for the Supreme Court over him. Much of the correspondence is missing, but what's left is instructive to an older Jefferson opening up about his ascension to the presidency in 1800. Rowan was an enslaver, an advocate of states' rights, and disagreed that the federal government could sue individual states. Rowan had sent Jefferson essays from the Richmond Enquirer under the name of Hampton, criticizing the recent McCullough v. Maryland decision, which held that the state of Maryland couldn't tax banknotes from those not chartered in the state, and as the second bank of the United States was the only other bank in Maryland, it couldn't impede the power of the federal government, implied or not. In a follow-up, Jefferson would lament the judiciary, calling it, quote, that body, like gravity, ever acting, with noiseless foot, an unalarming advance, gaining ground step by step, and holding what it gains, is engulfing insidiously the special governments into the jaws of that which feeds them, end quote. One wonders if they could see this saltiness as he took the oath of office on a mild afternoon in March of 1801, sworn in by none other than Chief Justice John Marshall. As for Rowan's descent to Marshall's court, Jefferson felt that these essays, quote, contain the true principles of the Revolution of 1800, for that was a real revolution in the principles of our government, as that of 76 was in its form, not affected indeed by the sword as that, but by the rational and peaceable instrument of reform, the suffrage of the people, end quote. The so-called Revolution of 1800 began on March 4, 1801. Welcome to Expeditions, a podcast around Lewis and Clark, where we look at the history and historiography one day at a time. We are at Expeditions Pod everywhere, social media, Patreon if you want to support the podcast, as well as our website. You are currently in Mile Marker 3, episode The So-Called Revolution of 1800. At 4 a.m., John Adams left the president's house for Baltimore. While he was the first to skip his successor's inauguration, but not the last, the peaceful transfer went on as scheduled. Jefferson awoke at the Conrad and McMunn boarding house at New Jersey and C Street as riflemen marched the streets. Jefferson, with congressmen and militia from Virginia and the District of Columbia, headed toward the Senate chambers at the Capitol. He proceeded in Republican simplicity, dressed plainly, no elegant suits, and definitely no swords, and walking, there was no carriages, no distance from the people. The Marine Band played for the first time as Jefferson arrived to a crowded scene, quote, not another creature could enter. There was near a thousand persons within the walls, end quote. Jefferson's tone in his first inaugural was the repudiation of years prior, setting the footing of American governance at the people's feet instead of its supposed superiors. It began with civil liberties, quote, Let us then, fellow citizens, unite with one heart and one mind. Let us restore to civil intercourse that harmony and affection without which liberty and even life itself are but dreary things, end quote. I'm reminded here of John Ledyard, who didn't live to see Jefferson's election, but would have been an ardent supporter, who upon his deportation from Russia wrote, quote, Though born in the freest of the civilized countries, yet in the present state of privation, I have a more exquisite sense of the amiable, the immortal nature of liberty than I have ever had before, 
It would be excellently qualifying if every man who was called to preside over the liberties of a people should once, it would be enough, actually be depraved of his liberty unjustly. He would be avaricious of it, more than any other earthly possession. There are two kinds of people I would anathematize with a better weapon than St. Peter's, those who dare deprive others of their liberty and those who suffer others to do it." End quote. In that vein, Jefferson would repeal the dreaded Alien and Sedition Acts and pardon all of those caught up in its snare, reminding those listening or reading his address in the nation's newspapers that one should not celebrate banishing religious intolerance if it is only to, quote, countenance a political intolerance, as despotic, as wicked, and capable of as bitter and bloody persecutions, end quote. He spoke up in defense of the minority and acquiescence to his own majoritarian tendencies, quote, all too will bear in mind this sacred principle, that though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will, to be rightful, must be reasonable. That the minority possesses their equal rights, which equal laws must protect, and to violate would be oppression." End quote. He would later advocate equal and exact justice to all men, and promote a jealous care of elections. With no coercive laws like the Alien and Sedition Acts cropped up during Jefferson's tenure, committed as he was to making the government nearly unseen by the average individual, other coercions showed themselves, like the Embargo Act and the implications of Burr's treason trial. As noted, Jefferson was elected in an era of uncertainty about national banks and national debts. The scope of a McCulloch decision just wasn't there in 1800. Jefferson advanced his conceptual empire of liberty in his vision of, quote, a rising nation spread over a wide and fruitful land traversing all the seas with the rich productions of their industry, engaged in commerce with nations who feel power and forget right, advancing rapidly to destinies beyond the reach of mortal eye." End quote. He acknowledged the honest payment of debts and saw a shrinking of the national debt from 83 to 57 million, mainly from shrinking the size of the government. The following year, however, he would lament, quote, "'We can pay off his debt in 15 years, but we can never get rid of the financial system, it mortifies me to be strengthening principles which I deem radically vicious." End quote. So, despite his yeoman fantasies, he knew that he had to secure the acquisitions of our own industry. He'd eliminate the whiskey tax and other excise taxes, one aspect of a wise and frugal government being that it shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. During his entire presidency, over 90% of revenue came from import duties. He'd also retained the First Bank of the United States, relenting to Gallatin's advice, despite his own misgivings, read, misunderstandings. Later, Madison would err on that very point. And after Lewis and Clark returned, he'd advocate for internal improvements, including a national road from the East Coast to St. Louis. This is the sum of good government, he insisted, and this is necessary to close the circle of our felicities. Another essential element of good government was the honest friendship of all nations entangling alliances with none. Steering through the conflicting elements of a troubled world was a priority, and if we continue on the nautical theme, the government, in its whole constitutional vigor, is a sheet anchor of our peace at home and safety abroad. The Barbary War, Napoleon's peace deal with England that set its sights back onto the Western Hemisphere, and a commitment to impressment that would lead to war with Great Britain were all major throes and convulsions of the ancient world, according to Thomas Jefferson. In these moments would come the purchase of Louisiana, but would also lead to the refusal to recognize Haiti as the world's second republic.
As mentioned, this government would become an abstraction to most Americans. Perhaps second to the Postal Service, the military would be, mainly for Westerners, the most FaceTime they would see. Yet Jefferson shrank the Army and the Navy, which was about 40% of federal spending, reducing the number of soldiers in the West to 3,000 regulars and only 172 officers, but also opening West Point. The future engineers to come out of the academy would have a sizable impact on the everyday interactions of future Americans. The most obvious impacts of the disbanding of the standing army was on Western expansion and the tendrils connected to it. These included the elevation of Ohio into statehood, the settling of speculative scandals in the West, such as those on the Yazoo, Native American assimilation, or worse, and the domestic slave trade, which would thrive after the international slave trade was officially banned in 1808. for patience with this new governing style, quote, I shall often go wrong through defective judgment. When right, I shall often be thought wrong by those whose positions will not command a view of the whole ground. I ask your indulgence for my own errors, which will never be intentional, and your support against the errors of others, who may condemn what they would not, if seen in all its parts, end quote. Perhaps this was some kind of long-winded apology for not anticipating the rise of factionalism and the crisis of the House of Representatives. The 12th Amendment wouldn't save the United States from its worst impulses, but it would assure that it wouldn't take the country to the brink of war just because someone forgot to strategically vote one less of their desired candidate. Even if the government wasn't to be seen on the daily, Jefferson was committed that when the time came, it would serve the power of good. Quote, Every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We have called by different names brethren of the same principle. End quote. In an invocation that would become famous and endlessly rift to the point of inanity, he'd proclaim, quote, We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. End quote. Of course, this isn't true today and wasn't really true back then. The schisms were already forming. As Gordon Wood notes, quote, a variety of Republican factions and groups arose in Congress and in several states. These divisions were organized around particular individuals, the Burrites, the Clintonites, around political and social distinctions, the Pennsylvania Quids, the Malcontents, around states or sections, the old Republicans of the South, and sometimes around ideology, the Principles of 98, the Invisibles, the Warhawks, end quote. The following year, Alexander Hamilton would write, quote, every day proves to me more and more that this American world was not made for me." End quote. After the inauguration, he'd return to his boarding house for a reception of well-wishers and visitors, where he would remain until March 19th, when he left for the president's house, while he waited for Meriwether Lewis to cross those Pennsylvania roads to the district. Margaret Baynard Smith, chronicler of early DC, explained, quote, he lived in perfect equality with his fellow boarders and eats at a common table, end quote. This Jefferson feels distant from the Jefferson of 1819, even if some of the themes remain the same. To Spencer Rowan, he wrote that it should be remembered as an axiom of eternal truth in politics that whatever power in any government is independent is absolute also. And independence can be trusted nowhere, but with the people in mass, they are inherently independent of all, but moral law. But these ideas 18 years after his inauguration hit a bit different. By 1819, Lewis was long dead, and the territory that his partner, William Clark, was governor of was on his mind. 
Quote, Last and most portentous of all is the Missouri question. It is smeared over for the present, but its geographical demarcation is indelible. What is to become I see not, and leave to those who will live to see it. End quote. The so-called revolution of 1800 accomplished much for white American political culture, but it left open the deep wound of chattel slavery that would soon tear at the seams of this country, offering up another shot at revolution. Revolution.